Father, we know and trust, O oh God, that you are a rock. You are our, our shield, as we have, we have said. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You are our solid rock. God, you are, are able <clears throat> to do far above, exceeding beyond what we ask or think. And Lord, I would pray, pray at this moment that you might take your word, sink it deep into our hearts. I know this morning I'm feeling um, desperate in some regards to preach your word faithfully, clearly, in a way that, God, is, is attractive. God, we're talking about the core of the gospel today. And so, God, open our hearts, God, to refresh, be refreshed again and to love you and to love your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are, are certain events <clears throat> in the history of the world that are so significant that I can just show you a picture and you can tell me the exact date that that took place. So let's, let's try. All right? Exact date. Who can tell me this? September 11th, 2000, 2001. Okay, we can get a little bit more difficult. This one. Pearl Harbor, what's the date? December 7th, 1941. Good, Gage, we'll see if you can keep it up, okay? What about this one? Normandy. June 6th, 19... 1940-44. I got that's okay. Good guess. All right. Here's, here's another one. 1865. April 14th, 1865. Good. Now, now, see that, you know exactly what it is, but sometimes the date are like, I know, I know when it is. Okay, these next ones are, are, uh, are more difficult. Okay, I'll be, I'll be very impressed if we get any of these. You ready? Challenger explosion. Eighty-six. I remember where I was. I was at college. I walked by there. All these people are talking about this thing. It was uh, January 28, 1986. Here's another one. What is this? The Hindenburg. When was this disaster? Year? 1937. Good. Who said that? Wayne, is that you said that? Good job. I've got a I've got a Mountain Dew for you after service if you want one. <laughs> May 6th, 1937. Okay, and now the one that we're talking about today. Was this? Martin Luther? October 31st, what year? 1517. Now, isn't it amazing that I don't think that you could come up with any other date in the 1500s probably than this event right here. Maybe I'm wrong. 
In the 1600s, it'd be kind of hard. 1700s, we got some history of the church. Even 1800, the biggest event almost that happened in the 1800s was was uh, Lincoln being shot. You couldn't quite. We got the date on that, but that was more of a struggle. 1900s more, but but of all the dates, October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed his 95 theses or statements to the door at Wittenberg. And here's how they begin. Right at the top. Out of love for the truth and desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and of Sacred Theology and lecturer in ordinary on the same at the place. Wherefore, he requests that those who are unable to be present and debate orally with us may do so by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. Martin Luther was willing to debate any and all of these 95 theses that he put together. And this may sound strange to us, nailing things to doors. We don't do that nowadays. But that was the custom of the day, to dispute academic matters. Today, we publish in journals. Today, we blog, post it on the web. And so it's really, that's how we do it today. In ancient days, they nailed it to the door. Now, Luther was very strategic when he nailed these theses to the door at Wittenberg because he, pa- he pasted them right on the, the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, which contained a bunch of relics of the saints. Okay, relics would be leftover things of the saints. I'm not sure exactly what was there, but enough so that on the next day, November 1st, for All Saints Day, crowds of people would come and celebrate All Saints Day worshiping, giving homage to, respecting, whatever, the, the relics of the church fathers. And then they'd enjoy the feast. It was kind of a, a day. So, it, so, it, so he put it out there at high noon on uh, October 31st, and it was around. And it caught the attention of many of the visitors that, that came. They, they began to talk about it, and the contents of these theses were taken home and copied. And, and I, I believe that copies were made and they distributed out. So on that day, people came to Wittenberg and then starts distributing out and starts going out far and wide. And um, it began then to set in motion the conflict that he had, the Diet of Worms, that we looked at last week, we thought about last week. And, and it set about in motion Luther evaluating his whole theology, and which, by the way, we are reaping the benefits of even here in the 2015. And it's Luther's theology and the theology of the Reformers that we're considering here during the month of June at Rock Valley Bible Church, the the main points of their theology is often ex- encapsulated in the, the phrase, the solas. Sola meaning only. There are five of them. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. Okay? Sola Scriptura means only, help me now, Scripture. Sola Fide, only faith. Sola Gratia, only grace. Solus Christus, only Christ and soli deo gloria, how we should live, right? Only to God be the glory. Uh, and, and in looking at these phrases, we are taking ourselves back to, to our roots. Um, because at Rock Valley Bible Church, we line up, for the most part, right in the historic line of the Protestant Reformation. And um, it's important to realize that because many Lutherans 
no longer follow Luther. Many Reformed churches no longer follow in the footsteps of the, of the Reformers because they've drifted and come up with their own ideas rather than following them. But by and large, we have embraced the historical faith of the, of the Protestants. Um, and, and let me also say, my, my messages these five weeks are, are more polemical, meaning that they're more, you know, this is what a Protestant church believes and this is what a Roman Catholic church believes. Don't do that very often. Don't normally name I'll just put the truth before you, just open a passage of Scripture. But this is more theological a little bit. It's more challenging on that. It's very topical. We'll get to a few texts. But it's always helpful for us to be reminded what we believe, and we believe in these solas. Well, getting back to the 95 Theses, it's interesting that if you'd read them for yourselves, you would be surprised. I would even say you would be shocked at what these theses contained. Because we often think that they, they contain full-fledged Protestantism. In fact, that was my surprise this week as I was studying. I thought, oh, we just kind of look at Luther and, and pull out justification by faith. And then we begin to talk about justification by faith. But he's really not even talking about sola fide in these. L- listen, listen to what Philip Schaff says. He says, these 95 theses, and Philip Schaff, by the way, is a, is a great historian. I got his, love his books on history. They're just, just wonderful, published about the 1800s, late 1800s. They're free on the web. You can get them and read them. He says, they sound very strange to the modern ear and are more Catholic than Protestant. There are no protests against the Pope and the Roman Church or any of her doctrines, not even against indulgences, but only against their abuse. They expressly condemn those who speak against indulgences and assume the Pope himself would rather see St. Peter's Church in ashes than to have it built with the flesh and blood of the sheep. They imply a belief in purgatory and they are silent about faith and justification which already form the marrow of Luther's theology and piety. So it's interesting, if you read them, they don't put forth Protestant theology and Luther, in some regards, was taking a baby step, just, just putting his toe in the water a little bit. But it also shows that, that his theology was very much in transition. Um, this was uh, 1517, where this, this came. Later, I'll, I'll read of his conversion in 1519, probably. 1521 is when he stood before the, the Diet of Worms. Um, but they did represent... Uh, a, a beginning of thoughts. But, but Luther didn't change them or didn't take away his theses because he says, I, I want them to stand that by them it may appear how weak I was and in what a fluctuating state I'm, of mind I was when I began this business of the Reformation. That, I mean, this was his coming out party, if you will. And I was then a monk and a mad papist and, and so submerged in the doctrines and the dogmas of the Pope that I would have readily murdered any person who denied obedience to the Pope. So he, he was there. He was for the church. You've got to understand, Luther wanted to reform the church. He didn't want to split the church. That was his heart right from the, from the start. And you can sense that. He's just being gentle and gracious and just beginning to edge with these 95 theses. Anyway, they put forth for the abuse of the indulgences... Not to prohibit them or, or be done away with them. In fact, the, the, these 95 theses are entitled Disputation to Explain the Virtue of Indulgences. Like he was trying to bring them up from their abuses where they're bad. And so, so bring them up. Now, you say, what's an indulgence? Well, glad you asked. Thanks for asking. An indulgence is like a giant fundraiser for the church. Um, you know, I always get calls now and then. Hey, do you want to sell candy bars for a fundraiser for the youth group? And I'm like, uh, no, I don't, I don't think we're, 
we're into that. So, but you have all these fundraising opportunities where you, you ask people to buy something they don't really want at a jacked up price so that you can take half the profits for your own little business. And that's sort of what was taking place when uh, the Pope needed money to complete the project of building St. Peter's Basilica, his dome in Rome. And he pushed his priests and bishops and encouraged the sales of indulgences among the people. And as the people gave money in someone's name or in their own name, the, the remission of the punishment in purgatory would be reduced. And the best salesman was um, this guy right here. Who knows this guy's name? You can read it there on the bottom. It says, Johannes Tetzel. I don't know what von Leipzig... What does von Leipzig mean? Is that from Leipzig or something? Or son of Leipzig? From Leipzig? From Leipzig. Okay, so he lived in Leipzig. He's a theological doctor. He is a, a preacher. He's, he's passionate. He's set out. He's summoned by the Pope to, to raise a lot of money. I mean, he's like your, your, your money raiser. He traveled great pomp and circumstance through Germany, speaking to large crowds. And he urged the people to purchase letters of indulgence for yourself... So that your years in purgatory be less. And also, he said, then for your, your departed friends and family members who are suffering right now in purgatory. And he came up with a, a clever little jingle. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So there's a little, little rhyme there. In German, it, it's more something like, as soon as the coin in the coffer clink, the, the, the soul from purgatory sprinked. Something like that. It's close. close. Okay, as soon as it clinked, it springed. But we rings and, cl- and springs. So the same idea is right there. And ignorant and superstitious people were coughing up mounds of cash for the church, thinking that they would absolve their friends and their relatives' punishment in hell by what they were doing. Basically, what they are doing is the Pope had this big money-making adventure, and he had it pretty good. Because these people were just giving him money to just say, yep, we reduce these years, we reduce these years, where the Pope, if he wanted to, could absolve all the years just with a statement. But you'll never find the modern-day Pope doing that because it's going to be less money coming into the church because indulgences are alive and well. I remember being at a Catholic funeral where they said, uh, yeah, you can have a Mass said in someone's name, and that reduces the time in purgatory. And you just go to any Catholic church, you talk to the priest and get that done and give us, give us the money with that, but we will... We will help you with those things now great parallels between the roman catholic church in luther's day and the the jewish religion in jesus day remember when jesus went in the temple and saw what was going on remember what he said you brood of vipers you're making my father's house into a den of robbers he said this it's written my house shall be called the house of prayer and he was not happy overturn the tables seeking to exalt the place of the worship of god and so likewise here luther had a similar indignation rather than selling animals they're selling indulgences and luther let the world know with his 95 theses now as it turned out these theses were never debated but they became the talk of the world and 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 set the world in motion and really the world was was going in motion and he just kind of jumped on and uh, helped the Protestant Reformation uh, go on. And the watershed issue, eventually as we lead on, then eventually became the issue of justification by faith alone, which is what we're, what we're, what we're looking at here. Uh, sola fide, is what we're calling it. 
Shorthand for justification by, by faith alone, meaning that we stand before God on the basis of our faith, period. That's it. And, and I would say that this is the cardinal doctrine that separates the, the Protestant church from the Roman Catholic church. What do you believe about sola fide? What do you believe about justification by faith alone? Because that word alone is crucial because the Roman Catholic church believes in faith that justifies the Roman Catholic believes that, that you need to believe in Jesus to be justified, in a justified to stand before God as, as righteous. But they just don't believe that it's faith alone. There's, there's got to be works attached to it. Now, the works, be careful here. It's not works to be saved. I'm trying to be as accurate and, and um, helpful to Roman Catholics as I can. It's not works to be saved because the Roman Catholics don't believe that you earn your salvation with your works. It's not it, but however, it is your works do give you righteousness. And that righteousness then is what God declares you are righteous to let you into the heaven. And anything that you're not righteous, that's what purgatory is about. So you can, you can purge that out. Uh, there, there are two words that can be seen. Uh, the two words are imputation and infusion. Imputation is the Protestant word. Infusion is the Catholic word. Uh, when reformers talk about being justified by faith alone, they mean imputation. They mean being declared righteous. When the Catholics talk about justification, they talk about infusion, and they, they talk about being made righteous. They, they talk about God declaring what is actually the state. So you say, well, what, what's the difference? Well, infusion is a little bit like Pouring righteousness into the soul often comes through the sacraments, which we're going to talk about. We talk about solus Christus, um, about the sacraments. Um, and so it's, we take the sacraments, we're involved in the sacraments, and we do righteousness. Then, then righteousness is like poured into us, like a, like a cup that is, that is poured up. And then when God looks upon us, he sees that righteousness that he put into us, and or that we have done that we that we get and 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 sees that we are righteous and so declares us righteous because we are righteous we have the righteousness of christ in us we have our own righteousness and our works bring about our own righteousness okay that's what the catholic church believes imputation on the other hand the protestant doctrine is um that that christ is for us He's not, it's not so much that his righteousness dwells in us as, it, as much as it is that Christ is for us. He's got this account of his own righteousness that, that gets attributed to us. So when God looks upon us, a Protestant, one who believes in faith alone, it, he doesn't see us, rather he sees Jesus. And when we do works of righteousness, it's not that we amass for ourselves righteousness, it's that Christ is working His sanctification work in us. We don't amass more righteousness for ourselves because we have it all in Christ. And that's where you see why Catholics need purgatory because their sins aren't, aren't, aren't completely forgiven. There's still this righteousness that they need to be filled up. They need to be cleansed. And so when they die, they don't, they're not cleansed up right. They, they need to enter this purging time. This purging time where they're, they're purged after death. But a Protestant, on the other hand, and this... This, by the way, this is the glories of the gospel. The, God, the Protestant needs no purging. Because we have all of Christ. 
right? When, when you believe, it's not like Christ forgives half of your sin or a third of your sin. or He wipes it all away. Colossians 2.14, he has forgiven us all our transgressions. There's nothing more to purge. And that's, that's the glories of, of sola fide. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. See, because if, if we become righteous by attaining to some level of righteousness, then our religion becomes no different than every, every other religion in the world. Uh, now, there are some exceptions of demonism and Wiccan and, you know, spiritism, things like that. But, but in general, people are trying to better themselves. They're trying to be good. They're trying to reach some nirvana or heaven or paradise or whatever. And they're trying to do so running up the corporate ladder, the righteousness ladder, if you will, trying to be good enough to, to get there. And the Catholics, you just throw them right there into that bin. Protestants, on the other hand, sola fide, it's exactly opposite. We believe and trust in Christ and we are totally, we're sanctified. We are in God's presence. We are made righteous. Declared righteous. It's what, it's what the form, reformers believed. It's faith alone. And, and, and rather than running this rat race, the good news for us is that it is faith alone. Our standing before God isn't, at, at the end, based on our effort. Uh, uh, our justification at the end is based upon, finally, our faith, which God deems to us as righteousness. And so in, in this life, what it means is this. It means that that, that to be right with God, I need to give up. I don't need to work harder. I need to, to admit defeat and say, I can't. Out of myself, I can't be righteous. God, but Christ just died for me, and I'm trusting in him, and I'm trusting completely in him. I'm not trusting in myself. And that's good news. Because that means that we don't have to, to work or, or get it. it. It's the end of us is the good news. It's all of Christ. It's not of us. It's all by faith. We can, by the way, relax. And we can enjoy God. We can enjoy the security of relationship with Him. We can enjoy adoption, irrevocably becoming His son or His daughter. We can trust the assurance of eternity with God because it's not us. It's dependent upon Him. People often debate, can... Can a person lose their salvation? And it's a wrong question. It's a, can God lose a sinner? That's the right question. Because God's the one who's grasped up in his hand. Right? John 8, John 6 speaks about that. And no one can take us out of his hand. Because we are, we are his and we are trusting him. And that's the gospel. Trusting in Christ alone. Or as we're studying here, sola fide. All right. So that's kind of theology around there. Let's, let's get into the Bible. All right. Last place to start, I believe, is Romans chapter 1. So take your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 1. And I say the best place to begin is Romans 1 is because this is, we're tying it back to history in this series. This is where Martin Luther um, was stirred. It's where God really opened his heart. I believe this is where his conversion was. You, you know, many of us people have life verses. That is the verse that, that came to them that really opened their eyes. Um, for Charles Spurgeon. Anyone know Charles Spurgeon's verse? Can you quote it maybe? Yvonne? We've we've read a lot of we've read a lot of Spurgeon, so Yvonne Isaiah forty five, which says what? Remember? It starts look. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. 
And for Spurgeon, I mean, he grew up in church. He heard bazillion sermons and messages. But that was the, that was the text that, that got him. And what got him was just, look, look. I mean, this whole thing about sola fide, just look. It's not work. It's not effort. It's just looking to the, the one who's going to unburden you. Jonathan Edwards, 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And, and for Jonathan Edwards, that was the verse that really opened to him the glories of God and of Christ. And for me, Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. I mean, there's a lot of deceived people out there. And God used that to, to stir my heart to pursue him and to embrace Christ fully. And for Martin Luther, it was Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Particularly the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Let, let's start in verse 16. Let's just read this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith to faith, or from faith first to last. It's a difficult phrase to, to translate. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here Paul is, is just wrapping up the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed about it. He says, I want to preach the gospel to you. Verse 15, I want to preach the gospel to you in Rome. This morning, I have a passion to preach the gospel to you who are at Rock Valley Bible Church because it's such good news. It's going to give you great joy if you embrace it and capture it. And there's, there's nothing, by the way, there's nothing that's going to empower Rock Valley Bible Church in the gospel. There's nothing that's going to power us with, with energy and with passion for Christ and to know that all our sins are forgiven. It's, it's, it's interesting that the Catholics, Roman Catholic Church, one of the things that they would have against this doctrine of sola fide is they would say, no, if you believe in sola fide, it's going to just turn into do whatever you want. You, you, people aren't going to pursue righteousness. But I tell you, you put someone who, who believes in a, in a system of works they have to get towards God, and you, believe, you put me then someone who fully embraces what it means to be justified by by faith alone, in Christ alone. And I will show you that this one will be far more passionate for God than this one will be. It just, it just works that way. This one is kind of a, a drudgery. It's doing things because you've got to do it. You're trying to get there. This one, it's all joy. It's all response because you can live in joy and enjoyment of it. And that's why he was eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. He says he's not ashamed of it. He says, this gospel that I'm preaching even today, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. This is the power of God for salvation. It's going, to, it's going to save us from being unregenerate to being regenerate to being a non-Christian. Being a Christian is powerful for that, but it's also powerful to, to keep us on to heaven until the end of the day. It's going to keep us saved, hearing it, whether it's Jews or Greeks or whoever. He says here what? Because in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now, when Martin Luther got to this word... The righteousness of God. He said, I hated that. I hated that word, the righteousness of God. And, and the reason he hated it is because, as I've told you before, that he was a monk. And if anybody succeeded in his monkery, it was Martin Luther. He said, that's what, that's what he said. Me, meaning that he was the most zealous, the most passionate, the most effort-filled person there was in the monastery. And yet, he saw the righteousness of God as so far beyond. And he says... I, I can't get there and I see my sin all the time. He'd spend hours in confession because he saw his sin. 
And, and people think that he was, he was crazy. That even the, the father to whom he was confessing said, Martin Luther, you're crazy. And Martin Luther just had a sensitivity to sin. If we all would have that sensitivity to sin, if we believed in the confession we need to confess our sins to be forgiven, we too would be spending hours in the confession. So he understood the righteousness of God, and he saw it hanging over him as this, this never-ending goal that he's trying to get to that he can't ever get, and it just, it just rests in condemnation to him. But in, in God's mercy, that word, the righteousness of God, became that word that, that saved his soul. So here's two years after this event of nailing the theses, two years before this event of standing before uh, Rome, Here's what he wrote in his testimony before in in his writings. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, like Paul, um, right? According to the law, found blameless. Is what he said. Philippians chapter 3. He says, I felt like that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. Is this monk doing and doing and doing? He just couldn't believe that, that God was satisfied with all the work that he was doing. Uh, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness, the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain, and by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. He just even didn't see the gospel as good news. He saw the gospel as be better. That's what the Roman Catholic Church says. Be better so you get this righteousness so your ears in purgatory aren't so much. And he continued on. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place right here. Romans 1.17. He just beat the word. Do you ever know what that's like? Just to, to take the words and to just to beat them and beat them and go over them and over them and say, what do they mean? How can I explain it? We'll try teaching sometime. And you'll do that. I do that often. What does it mean? How can I explain this? How can I understand that? He says, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, he finished the verse. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there he says, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, and catch this, the passive righteousness which merciful God justifies us by faith, as is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. This passive righteousness, meaning this righteousness that is given to us, was huge for Martin Luther, rather than an active righteousness that we attain. There's a big difference there. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. I would argue this was the point of his conversion. I mean, just, just the, the, the watershed moment where he understood and his eyes were open clearly to say, it's not of me, it's all of him. 
And, and by the way, that might be encouraging. Here was a monk in his monkery and doing his things on the religious treadmill, viewing the gospel as burdensome, and then, and then he saw the gospel as glorious. I believe that's what conversion is, is when you embrace the gospel like that, so glorious it, that you enjoy his grace and seek to extend his glory like we're doing in Vacation Bible School, like we're doing this fun fair today. But right now is the time where we're enjoying his grace, right? <clears throat> so uh, I felt I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates, and there a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. So he began to, to look at Scripture from the side of sola fide rather than looking at from the side of got to work, got to work, and everything just opened up for him. And thereupon, and it could be that his, his mind was open, right? Because the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, but God came in and quickened him. All of a sudden, the Scriptures come alive when you understand when God has worked a work in your soul. Therefore, I ran through the Scripture from memory, all the Scriptures that he could remember, and I found, in other terms, an analogy as the work of God that is what God does in us, the power of God with which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And all of a sudden, he saw these things of what God is doing in us, Rather than, I'm trying to get to God. And Luther's spiritual eyes were opened by that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. Right there, Romans 1.17. quote from Habakkuk 2.4, which is quoted three times in the New Testament. Once here, uh, if we have time, we'll go to Galatians 3 to look at that. And once in Hebrews chapter 10. But it, it puts forth the way of God's people. It's not that they're attaining righteousness through their works. It's just God's people will live by faith faith they will they will trust god and and god then will give him that person who's walking by faith his own righteousness not that they live to get the righteousness but through faith are given that righteousness passively as luther said and then this made, doctrine made all the difference for martin luther he began to see scriptures in a whole new way he saw the glories of the gospel justification by faith and how we live by faith and and that we live believing that by our faith, God then justifies us. In fact, that is the argument of Romans. Uh, Romans beginning in verse 1, or verse 18 rather, of chapter 1, we see something of God being revealed. We see the bad news. We see the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And And, and here we see God's God's wrath revealed. It is the bad news before the good news comes in chapter 3, verse 21. But the bad news that revealed this is that God is angry with sinners. You don't hear that much today. But God's wrath, that's what anger means. That's what wrath means. It means anger is poured out against ungodly, unrighteous people who, who suppress truth in unrighteousness. They know about God. He's exposed himself to creation and they denied him and God is angry with them. And it doesn't matter whether they are Gentiles, chapter 1, or beginning to talk about Jews in chapter 2, finally coming down and fully talking about Jews in chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has a Jew or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Listen, Jews were given the Bible. To them, it is a great advantage. And then he comes down to show that it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, we're all shut up under sin. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
The result is that we're all under sin because none of us is good. And, and Romans 1 through 3 begin with the bad news that God's wrath is revealed against us because of our sin. But that same word about being revealed, being manifested, being shown is there in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. See, it's not it's not the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God here, he clarifies it. Here's how you are righteous in God's sight. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction, right? All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Whether it's Jews or Greeks, we all have sinned. But through faith, we, are, we then know the righteousness of God. See, and it's not based on law. It's, it means it's not based on what we do. It's not based on our religious righteousness. It's not, hear me rightly, okay, listen to infusion. It's not what Christ does in our soul to make us righteous so that we do righteous things because we are righteous. No, rather, it's God's righteousness comes to us that we are, as Luther said, we are passive in receiving everything that he gives us. Not while we're actively achieving through our efforts, but while he passively gives his righteousness to us. In other words, the gospel is this. We don't have to attain to God's righteousness. God's righteousness has been given to us. And we don't have a righteousness of our own. It's given to us by faith. Paul Paul continues. Here he says this. And these, no distinction, all have sinned. And these sinners, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Though we're sinners, though we've fallen short of the glory of God, yet through faith we are justified in God's sight. There's no mention here about infused righteousness or working people or so they're good enough to God declaring them righteous. No, it's God declares us righteousness in Jesus, not because of what we do, but because of what what God has done and because of God's declaration. Okay, now here's a problem. Roman Catholics will say against you Protestants, you guys, you're making God a liar because he is calling people righteous who aren't righteous. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because, see, the Roman Catholics say that, that we, we earn this righteousness, we get this righteousness, and we have a righteousness, and at the end of the day, God is just basically an, an objective judge who says, oh, yeah, I see, yep, I see righteousness in you, you're, you're righteous. Enter into purgatory and purge out all your unrighteousness. But he's seeing the reality of what's in us. But the gospel sola fide says that, no, it's, it's Christ for us, it's Christ's righteousness. And so the Roman Catholics say, well, well, God's not being honest. I mean, how can someone be sil- who's sinful be, be declared righteous? And, and Catholics charge the Protestant doctrine of sola fide as dishonest of God because a sinner's not righteous, so how can he be declared so? And to that, Paul replied, I believe, in some regards, to say, okay, well, here's the problem. Here's, here's how it works. It's the, to- the atonement. This is how God can justify a sinner and still be just. Because okay, he, he picks up exactly on that issue. Look at, look at verse 25. Whom God put forward, this is Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation, when you hear propitiation, what's the word that you should think of? Do you remember? You should think of wrath. Propitiation, think wrath. 
Propitiation is what satisfies God's wrath. So when Jesus was our propitiation, he was our our wrath-pacifying sacrifice through his blood. And this is to be received passively by faith. This was, God says, Paul says, to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Like he passed over sins of Abraham, he passed over sins of David, never requiring a punishment of them. But now the gauntlet has fallen and the punishment has taken place on the, the life of Jesus. But it's for us too. But, but passing the, the punishment upon Jesus who suffered for our sin and we who receive Christ's righteousness, it was to show his righteousness, his fairness, his honesty, if you will, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, that God might be righteous and able to, to, to declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus, not according to his work. That's, that's what's going on there in that paragraph. And, and then he makes it even more clear than, than what becomes of our boasting. He says it's excluded. There's no boasting in the gospel. There's none. See, if... If you're doing something, you can boast of whatever little you did. I don't care how small you did. I mean, kids who, who draw, draw this drawing of something that looks like you don't know what, and they need to explain to you what it was, they can boast, look what I drew. And you say, wonderful, you drew. They did something. But when it comes to God, there is zero boasting because we don't do anything. It is a, a passive faith trust that God gives us everything. Where's the boasting? It's excluded. If you have a little bit of boasting, you've denied the gospel. It's gone. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By works? No, but by the law of faith. See, faith is... God God made our justification for Him in such a way that boasting would be excluded because there's nothing of us that we do. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See, the works of the law don't come into the equation of justification. Now, works are important. Okay, uh, works, I believe, demonstrate that you indeed have a redeemed heart, that you have this love and enjoyment for God, that you, you can't do anything else but love and, and serve God. There, there is a place for works, but they're not meritorious in any way. You're not earning anything. You're not gaining righteousness by any of those sorts of things. And that's the idea. He, he pounds again. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, it's not the works of the law. It is sola fide. It is faith alone. Now, regarding works, I mentioned before, the, the, the common slogan is that we believe salvation by faith alone, but we believe that salvation, that, that that won't be just faith. It won't be only faith alone, but it will create works that we do, but not meritorious on a treadmill trying to do everything. Everything's done but because of pure pleasure and love for God. Okay, so, so how is it that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law? Well, chapter 4 explains a little bit what's going on here. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? So he goes back in the Old Testament. He says, okay, let's look at Abraham. How, what did he gain? He said he was our forefather according to the flesh. He's talking to Jews particularly here. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here is the gospel. Is that God receives our faith and he counts it or credits it or considers it 
to be righteousness. See, it doesn't say that, that Abraham was righteous in God's sight, and so God declared him righteous. No, what was coming from Abraham to God was faith, and what was going from God to Abraham was just being counted righteous. This is a, a legal term, counted, legizomai. It was, it was placed on the ledger to him as righteousness. Not infused, imputed, called righteous. That righteousness isn't of ourselves. We have the faith, faith in God. God takes that faith and considers it to be righteous. Okay, so I'm thinking about an illustration of this. And this is our fun fair Sunday, is it, we're having. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd take on that. And um, this is a, a machine. Have you ever seen this machine like this before? Ever seen a machine like that before? Yeah? David, have you, you've, you've seen a machine like that before? Where? At Chuck E. Cheese. Were you at Chuck E. Cheese recently? When? Yesterday, he's at Chuck E. Cheese. He knows all about this, okay? Now, my analogy isn't, isn't fully, uh, fully here, but you, you play some games, right? And these tickets start spewing out. And so at the end of the day, what do you got? You got this, you got this stuff full of tickets. Now, let me ask you, how much is that worth? It's like paper, right? The only way that it's worth something is for the person on the other side of the counter to look at those tickets and say, oh, you got 10,000 tickets here. I think you can have this small teddy bear, right? And so, in other words, they're, they're taking this ticket, which is like meaningless of value, but they are considering it. They're counting it. They, they count them all up, and they, they put them on this side, and they say, okay, well, that's whatever, $2 worth. You know, and so you can have this. But see, it's only the person behind the counter who decides and declares that those tickets are worth anything, that they are worth something. And so they get credited to the account, so you get this little teddy bear. Well, in the same way, that's how sola fide works. See, our faith doesn't intrinsically make us righteous in any way, but God has just determined, like a ticket at Chuck E. Cheese, that, that he'll take our faith. And he will then, behind the counter, consider that righteousness that then he credits to our account. And, in fact, it's all the righteousness credited to our account. And so, I mean, the analogy fails at, at some point, but, but that's what happened. He takes our faith, he counts it as righteousness. Isn't that what verse 3 says? Abraham believed God, his faith was going up towards God, and God then reckoned it to him, considered it to be righteous coming back. And that, dear folks, is the gospel. It's what it took place with Abraham. You remember, right? Go out, Abraham, number the stars if you can. So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Paul quotes there in Romans chapter 3, sola fide. And then Paul goes on to clarify. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, he, he talked about, and he's talking about works. He talked about the, the role of works. So, another analogy is this. So, you, you're working for your employer, and you put in a week's work, work work and uh you get a paycheck from him and we're courteous so we might say thank you but but what are you saying thank you for if he gives you a paycheck like 
You just put in your 40, 50 hours of work. He gives you a paycheck. That's what's due you. That's not a gift. If anything, he should be thanking you and saying, thank you for the 50 hours of work you put in. Here's your $50. But instead, right, if we think about, well, it's, it's thanking. No, see, because if you work for it, you're totally do it. But if it just comes like justification by faith alone, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes... Anyone justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, right? That's just like 50 hours of work. Oh, I believe. I believe. And then you get something from your employer. Then you'll be thankful, right? My dad likes to tell the story of his dad who wanted the perfect job. You know what the perfect job is? Payday every day. No work on payday. That's like the perfect job. But that's, that's what it's like to believe and get paid. We're not doing anything, just trusting God. That's what God does in the gospel. He pours out his riches, which are far beyond even what we can understand or grasp. That's, that's how it works with God. He doesn't look to our work and say, oh, thank you for the work you've done. Here, I'll give you some righteousness. That's, that, that's meritorious. That's working like we do in our jobs. That's not right. The, the gospel is... I'm just believing and trusting, and God gives everything. He doesn't reward us for our righteousness. He grants us on the basis of our faith. As a result, we know the blessings of God. That, that's where it goes, right? The, the blessing and the response. And this is contra those who might say, well, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, you're just going to create people who, who just live like they want to live. And I say, well... Some people do that, but those who do that don't understand what's going on because David, verse 6, um, speaks of how, how wonderful it is who God counts righteous apart from works. Again, not from works. It's righteousness that comes faith. It's not works. Just as, verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. And then he quotes from Psalm 32, Verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one to whom God doesn't count iniquity. If your sins are forgiven, you're entirely blessed. And and David here is like, I know that blessing. Because he said in verses 5 and 6, I'm sorry, these were verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 and 4, of Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent about my sin... My my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as with a fever heat of summer. See, the reality of unconfessed sin is it will do to your soul. It will give you toil and pain. It will make you sluggish. It will wipe away all your vitality. When God's convicting hand is upon your soul. And what did he require of David? Merely to confess his sin and say, God, I agree with you. We'll get to this. Uh, sometime in, in 1 John 1, 8, if you can, 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what David did, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, and therefore I know now the blessing of whose sins are covered and the man to whom the Lord will not count his sin. See, when God takes your faith and counts it and credits to you as righteousness, it gives you a joy, it gives you encouragement, it gives you hope. 
that will be unmatched by any hope that you'll have in the world. At our prayer meeting this morning, Darren, I really appreciate your words about John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. We hear that often, but the next phrase says, he who eats me, maybe, I forget, will never hunger, will, will never thirst again. And the idea there is that when you eat of Christ, in the same picture here, just eating, taking in, when you believe and trust, you'll be satisfied. There's no more longing, oh, like, I, I need to do more, I need to, I need to have more, I need, you'll just be, when you eat of Christ, you'll be satisfied. You won't thirst anymore, you won't hunger anymore. And that's the idea here. In, the, in your dark days of struggle with sin, there's a hope that you're a sinner, yes, but by faith, God considers you righteous. Okay, you know, I, I got more here, but we got to finish with this, okay? Simo justus et peccator. Who knows what that means? You're taking some Latin. You've corrected me on my Latin. I don't know how that was. Do you know what this one is? Okay, simul, help me. At the same time, our, like our English word, what? Simultaneous, right? Eustace, justice, et. Yeah, I heard R.C. Sproul, you know, he said about et. Et is the past tense of after you've eaten. I've et, that's what he said. It was pretty funny. So <laughs> you laugh too. Picotter, sinner. So what does it say? At the same time, righteous and a sinner. This is sola fide. Martin Luther used this exact phrase. This is Latin, right? This is the gospel that, that at, the, at the same time, I am, I am made righteous. I am I'm justified in God's sight, but I am also a sinner. It, but, it, but it happens... On a human level, we are sinners still. But when God looks upon us, he declares us Eustace. He declares us right. That is the gospel. Sola fide. I, you know, I got to finish with this. this. This wraps it up. This is a good conclusion. Did you know that everything that I preached here today, according to the infallible counsel of Trent, by the authority of the Catholic Church, condemns me to hell? The um, Council of Trent, 1500s, in response to the um, Protestant Reformation, um, sometimes called the Infallible Council of Trent. Here's what the church infallibly said. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, and it clarifies, and the clarification is exactly what I'm saying here, let him be anathema. If you believe what I said today, the Catholic Church has just condemned you to hell. Sola Scriptura, right? Am I going to believe the, the authority of these men, or am I going to believe the authority of the Word of God, which I clearly laid out for you, which I think is, is pretty clear? In fact, Paul, though, does the reverse job in Galatians, and I'll just, I'll just mention this. And this is what I think has happened with Rome, so I'm going to spit it back to them. Rome, Galatians 1, he says, I am so astonished you're quickly deserting him who called you to, in the grace of Christ, you're turning to a different gospel. Which, by the way, is a gospel mixing faith and works in Galatians. Sounds just like the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Not that there is another one. Not that there is another gospel. It's not talking about a different gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Distort it, meaning it's not taking it away. It's like taking it and just er, twisting it a little bit. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so and I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to one that you receive, let him be accursed. And I just say, well, the, the ball is lobbied back onto the Roman Catholic Church Council of Trent. Thank you very much. From Galatians chapter 1. And when you go through Galatians chapter 1, it speaks, chapter 2 verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And it's not the law, it's not your righteous deeds, it's all of faith that God has given you, and that will transform your soul. You'll be zealous for God and His glory. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and licentiousness and worldly desires, but to live all for the the glory of Christ. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray, God, that we would believe and trust entirely in, in Christ not in our works, O oh God. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We're not going to be made more righteous. God, help us to believe sola fide. God, help us to align ourselves rightly with, with your word. Help us to see where we've come from. All great movements of God start here with a restoration of the gospel, a restoration of to- the total work that you do in our souls. So I pray that you would restore us and stir us to church in these ways. Pray even next week as we look at sola gratia. God, what a wonderful doctrine. What wonderful grace you've given to our lives. So I pray you'd help us and keep us, sustain us this week. Pray for the fun fair that we have. I pray it might attract much attention that, that many might come and that many might come to our vacation Bible school that we can share the gospel with the kids, God, with the parents as appropriate as opportunities come up. God, for the glory of Jesus alone we pray. Amen.